Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. This is the fourth of 12 interviews with futurists and forward-thinking leaders. These interviews are intended to help you and our global audience of leaders become better visionaries for your organizations and be more prepared for our uncertain future. Today, I'm talking with Trond Undheim. Originally from Norway, Trond is based outside of Boston where he's a futurist, podcaster, investor, author, speaker, entrepreneur, and the former director of MIT Startup Exchange. We discuss how Trond identifies and vets sources of information, trends he's tracking closely, and what's filling him with a sense of optimism. The 12 Geniuses Futurist Friday episodes are brought to you exclusively by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is a B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. Reach out at thestarconspiracy.com for more information or to schedule a chat with the team. Trond, welcome back to 12 Geniuses. It's good to be here. Hey, we're happy to have you back. What we want to start out with is what are you reading, watching, listening to that would help our listeners better prepare for the future? I thought for this talk, we would talk about my next book and, and what I'm working on to understand regeneration or, or the next iteration of sustainability, but at scale. So in other words, I'm trying to figure out how we are going to save this planet. And that sounds kind of corny because, you know, obviously almost everyone is trying to figure that out. But the vantage point that I'm choosing here is kind of industrial tech innovation and to see whether there's any chance at all that we are going to be stopping this process of, of which is called kind of the, the sixth extinction. So I'm reading a bunch of books and research, and I'm also doing, I have shifted at least one of my podcasts over towards this topic for, for the spring and summer. So I'm interviewing visionaries and leaders and futurists and researchers, you know, in sustainability and related topics, innovation, startups, also industrialists, and I'm exploring, uh, you know, those topics. What are the two podcasts? I run a podcast called Futurized, which is about all aspects of kind of the emerging future, but defined as kind of the next decade. So this is not where we every day have, you know, debates on, you know, the next thousand years, uh, but it's kind of the near, near term future. So we talk about emerging technologies uh, and, and that's where I put on all these uh, sustainability debates now. And then Augmented Podcast is more of an industrial podcast, but we talk about the human-centric views, views of technology and how kind of augmentation is really the new ma mantra, I, I feel there, because, you know, this very simple idea that machines and automation were going to be the solution to all of our problems, it doesn't really pan out and it doesn't really work that way in, in factories. So this whole idea of lights out factories is you know, it's nice and it'll work for marginal factories, but most of the innovation happens when uh, humans are together and interact with, with machines, right? So if we want constantly evolving technologies and production techniques that are not running amok and crazy in ways that we don't understand and you know, threatening humanity, we actually need to have a human-centric development path for all kinds of technologies. So John Ehrenfeld, a very big thinker in, in uh, industrial ecology, has written several books now on what he calls flourishing. And so that's one of the things I'm inspired by at the moment. He feels that sustainability, you know, is really tied to this growth debate. You know, everything should grow. You know, it's like, yes, we should save the planet, but only if we all grow. But, but the metaphor is even wrong, he says, and I think that's correct. So there are lots of other metaphors to figure out, you know, where we should move, move as a human race. 
And, you know, regeneration is one metaphor. You know, the idea would be that we're, we're trying to regenerate. And flourish is, is John's metaphor, which I guess goes even a little bit deeper to some sort of deep sort of right brain empathy based production technique, I guess, where, where we really can't be focused on, on growth at all as an objective. But the question now really is, are we going to rely on technology and innovation to get us out of these problems? So that's sort of the question I'm posing. So to your question about research and where I'm looking, so I'm trying to figure out really in, in a couple of frontier areas, is there any conceivable chance that the, the path of R&D is, is going to take us out of these problems, whether it is you know, pretty simple stuff like low cost sort of remote sensor technology so we can actually monitor climate changes and other things so we can have kind of an early warning system so that we at least know in, in what horrible situation we are and to what extent it is deteriorating. Or the more expensive and sort of crazy experiments going on with kind of carbon capture, storage and, and utilization, which I find so far, to be honest, to, to be a load of crap. I mean, it's, it's just very bad old industrial technology or it packages into and, and fits into sort of older paradigms. So even if we were to reach scale with those sorts of approaches, I, I sort of just wonder if it's just hatching a, a, an existing wound that we really need to take care of in, in different ways. I'm not saying we should stop it, but I think, you know, one, to get to scale there is very, very difficult. And the problem is, at least all of the things that I'm seeing right now that are contributing to this, they look like everyone's nightmare of a, of, of a bad kind of steel infrastructure project that, you know, is just going to become these endless, massive farms of horrible, horrible visual and probably, you know, habitat destroying infrastructure that we're going to have to place, you know, outside every city outside everywhere there's industrial activity I, I i didn't think about them in that way and i i thought of them as one part of the solution and not the main part of the solution but just an ancillary part yeah and i think that is the way to really look at it um the problem that i'm tackling however is if they are not the solution if we for now the next 10, 20 years think in, or in the public imagination or in the industry debates, they become the solution. I think we're really creating even larger problems because it's pretty apparent that it won't be the solution. It might be 10% of the solution. It might be 20, I don't know. But it definitely is not 50% uh, of the solution. So that means we have to expend enormous resources on something else to get there. And that's really, you know, that's really what I'm concerned about, because I think partly it's an, it's an issue that we need to bring up with governments and, and wealthy industrialists, but also we need to inspire startups to come up with really interesting ways to, to handle this. But more than anything else, I think it's individuals. We actually need to reshift, not our consumption habits. I mean, there's some uh, people coming up on my, my podcast, uh, uh, Gillis, who, who just wrote a book on you know, the, the way that individual habits need to change, not just green consumer, but they talk about green citizens. And I'll, I'll give you their, their book title, title in a second. The Big Fix is, is their upcoming book. So, so there are lots, there's lots of different uh, areas where we need progress. And the problem is if it becomes encapsulated as one or two things, no matter how effective those 
one or two things become. I think we're gambling with humankind in, you know, in a couple of technology areas. And it might even just be, you know, emerging uh, energy sources that promise, you know, these massive breakthroughs in, in energy uh, that I'm also looking at. But I mean, similarly, I think, you know, if you put that forward as like one big fix, uh, we're in deep trouble. How do you do your research? And then how do you evaluate those sources to make sure that it's the information you're getting is accurate? The only way to assess a source is you have to engage with what I would call the spirit of the argument, which is really, you're not just reading it for content. You are reading, examining how it was formed. Who is saying this? Can I find someone who's critical of this? What might their position be? What is the context that this uh, fits within? You know, what, what is the evidence presented? I mean, that's a little more obvious, but you have to kind of cross-reference with other existing bodies of work. You can't just, and it's not just about this silly thing of like independent sources, because there are really very few truly independent sources. I'm actually much more excited about thinking about the multi-dependence of sources. So there's no point here seeking independent anything that you, you just have to figure out how it all got where it is and if it is believable within its own sort of context. And, and there are many, many strategies you can use. I share with you the strategy of using narratives through podcast interviews as a very, very important gathering tool for, for information. I find that when I interview someone, oh, you know, over 45 minutes, it's a really First of all, a little preparation. And then when you're there, it's really hard to hide in front of a microphone for 45 minutes. So whatever that person knows, you're going to get some of it. If there is anything to be gleaned, you, you can get that in 45 minutes. So I learn a lot. And then because my memory isn't optimal, you know, I can uh, record it and listen to it and, and get the readouts and, 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 you know, the transcripts and, and then rehash the argument and, and maybe improve for the next time. So I find this dialogue is really the answer to knowledge gathering. We, we focus too much on the gathering part and not so much on the interpreting part and the engaging part. So you and I talking, understanding what the other person thinks, that really the dialogue, the Socratic method, which now is enhanced by these digital tools so we can actually record what we said, even in full visual, um, is going to be tremendously useful going forward. I use a lot of other people's podcasts in my uh, knowledge gathering too, because they're sometimes much more uh, recent, you know, so they stay up to date. Plus they have that long narrative that you need in order to kind of ponder things maybe in, in uh, audio-visual form, and it's interesting. What social trend are you following? We talked about climate change, and that definitely is a social trend, but outside of climate change, what social trend are you following or exploring right now? Well, I think the other one that, that I had briefly talked about was this humanistic technology exploration. So to what extent can we design technologies that out of the box, just work a little better for human beings. And, you know, this, we have come a long way here. And the easiest example is the iPhone, which is tremendously more intuitive than many, many other technologies out there. I'm sure it's not perfect, but it is addictive enough, which is a problem in and of itself, 
Um, and it's easy enough that, you know, even kids take to it really fast. And it is a platform of, you know, immense power. Now, it would be great if those kinds of uh, interfaces existed for industrial technologies. And it would be great if we had some sort of guarantee that if a technology was in, in wide use, uh, then it was also easy to use. And usually that's, that's the case, <laughs> except in industry where there are plenty of technologies that people are forced to use that aren't really helping the individual worker. They were designed for specialist engin engineers or something like that. And that's something I really care about. In fact, I, I wrote a whole book, co-wrote a whole book about it called Augmented Lean with uh, my co-author, Natan Linder. And in that book, we're exploring how it's possible at industrial scale to try to do the same thing, or at least have the mindset that our technologies are going to actually, you know, help individual workers. Because, you know, there are, there are more workers than there are managers and engineers. So why do we design our technologies for engineers? Well, the answer is, of course, because engineers design them. And that's where the problem starts, right? We have to change who designs these technologies. Engineers should be helping, but they cannot be the lead designer because then they will design technologies for themselves, which is useless. So anyway, this is a, actually a, it's a very, very big problem. What would be the implications, positive implications, if, if I'm stating this correctly, humanist technology was introduced? If you design technologies correctly, then training should be near zero. So the implication is empowerment, right? Because you can actually use the technology to not only make your employer happy, but to make yourself more fulfilled in your work. And you can feel more independent. And maybe you can even reinvent the way you do work and make yourself, and this is, of course, challenging for, for managers, but they can become so independent that they actually start innovating independently and perhaps spin out and do, do more creative things than, than the managers even envisioned. And, and, you know, if you do that at societal scale, and this ties back maybe to the regenerative thinking, we actually need all this labor to do innovative things to save the planet and to save themselves. But again, it's governance. So if you convinced the country, uh, you know, America, even just one country, big manufacturing country and said, well, look, if you're putting a technology into the factory and it takes more than a week to train, you have to pay a training tax, an automation tax. Well, that would start to make real impact, for example, right? So if uh, usability of technology becomes a human right, it changes the equation and just changes the way that technology over time, obviously you can't, uh, you know, source in a, a principle like that overnight, but uh, these are principles that are going to be important in the future of humankind. So we have to start thinking and designing algorithms and technologies differently so that they respond better to human needs. And no, this is not some sort of anti-industry argument. This is actually the future of industry. Trond, what is filling you with a sense of optimism? I think human ingenuity in all of its forms uh, survives all of this. It survives climate change, it survives terrible industrial revolutionary technologies that you know, are supposed to change things for the better and perhaps end up not doing so. I think human ingenuity and uh, the empathy we all strive towards, but you know, don't, don't always reach, the fact that it's there as an intention 
um, I think fills me with hope. Is there anything else you would like to add in order to help leaders, whether they're corporate leaders or government leaders, better become visionaries or prepare for the future? Management is really something we should be doing as little as possible because it is the engagement from below that really is transformative. Yes, there's coordination needed and coordination can channel innovation, but it's not in the channeling that the innovation happens. It is in the initiative, individual in initiative and small group initiative. That, that's where a lot of these ideas uh, that then flourish, uh, where they originate. And I think remembering that is important, uh, no matter how many people you lead, whether it's a group of, uh, you know, a team of three or, or it's a team of, or, you know, a company of 3000 people or 30,000 people. I think remembering where those ideas come from and the fact that you probably cannot really forecast where, where these ideas and these movements really that you have to build upon where they come from. So it's just all about being attentive and picking that up and then, and then channeling it, obviously. But you cannot manage your way out of anything. So, and I think that's an important perspective. The, the control paradigm, I think, is largely over you know, in management or in anything. We, we can't really control things, but we can channel and we can listen and discover and, and, and then obviously support uh, developments that are happening that we think are positive and try to do our best. That is really what leadership uh, becomes. I think that's an important message and tying it back to what you were saying earlier, you don't flourish when you're managed. You flourish when you're led. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Yes. And I think, uh, you know, John Ehrenfeld's notion of flourish or the ideas around regeneration as a sort of principle, these are important ideas to, to consider, but they, they have a lot of ramifications. So I don't think that I fully wrap my uh, head around, you know, what exactly we, it is that we should conceive as humanity's next big idea. But I don't think it's related to economic growth. This has been a fantastic conversation. Once again, Tron, thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thank you to the Star Conspiracy for sponsoring our Summertime Futures Friday series. On next week's show, we'll hear from David Houle. David is a futurist and prolific author who believes that 2020s will be the most disruptive decade in human history. And based on how the first quarter of the decade has gone, he's probably right. Thank you to Richard, Jonathan, Jay, Tony, and the rest of our production team at GL Pro in London. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.